following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I have no idea how long this will take or how this will go, uh, but it is what we need to do this morning. And the rest of John 8 is going to have to wait once again. Um, last week we were supposed to look at John eight twelve through 20, and I got so consumed by just verse 12 that the whole thing was about verse 12, and I promised to give the rest of it this week, and um, I became consumed with current events this week that I think are so important that I simply can't ignore them this morning. I can't allow us to ignore them this morning. And so we've changed gears uh, again, which is uh, sometimes what we do here. If it's your first time visiting us, I, uh, I sometimes sort of just say uh, on weird occasions like this, this might not be artisan normal, so if you come back next week it may be a little different. Um, but I don't quite want to say it that way this time because I, I, want, I want the willingness and ability to change directions in response to something that's happening in our world to be artisan normal. So um, uh, I, I guess I could have just skipped the whole thing, but um, this is, is not... Uh, not what happens every week. I'll just say that. If the current events that I had been consumed with this week had just been the suicide of a beloved celebrity, I might have been able to move on, although I probably would have stopped to say something, which I will stop to say now, which is that if you do suffer from serious ongoing depression, please do not believe the lie that... that um, it's a sign you have weak faith or that there's a demon assailing you or that you just need to pray more and you'll feel better. Because for so many people that is not the case. Depression is a disease um, and it needs to be treated as a disease if it becomes that serious. Just like we wouldn't tell a cancer patient, just pray, don't bother with that chemotherapy because that's a sign of weakness and a lack of faith. We should not say the same thing to people who suffer from depression. And so I, just statistically speaking, I know that there are people in the room who suffer from depression, uh, even of the clinical variety. And I want to say to you that this is not a place where if you come and talk to me or to our leadership team or to anybody at Artisan, I hope, um, certainly speaking for myself and the leadership team, where if you come and, and share that that's something you're struggling with, you'll be told that you just need to pray harder. That is not what our response will be. Um, so if it was just Robin Williams, or even if it was just the unfathomable chaos and genocide in Iraq, I might have been able to go on with John 8, but it was so much more than that. So um, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about Ferguson. And I've put the hashtag Ferguson up there for a reason, not trying to be clever. But um, I'm going to do my best to to catch you up if you don't know what's going on here, and I'll do that in a way that's not too graphic. And I was going to show some striking images and things, and I I decided against that because I know that we don't always have all adults in the room during this time, despite what I said earlier. Um, But the story itself is extremely disturbing. I can't really do anything about that. And so let me just say this. If, If you've gotten your news from... Uh, let's see if I can do this in the polls, right, facing you. MSNBC or CNN or Fox News this week, um, you've missed part of the story or you got it late, no matter which of the political 
wings you get your news from. Um, hashtag Ferguson indicates that the news came out about this stuff on Twitter with live eyewitnesses and photos and videos and things. And because uh, of, for a lot of reasons, one of which is part of the big, huge problem, the media did not report this in a, in a complete or up-to-minute way. Um, so the, here's, here's the summary of the story. Last Saturday... A police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, which is an inner ring suburb of St. Louis, shot and killed an unarmed 18-year-old black male named um, uh, Michael Brown. Now, the details of, of what led to the shooting are in some dispute, of course. Um, as you can imagine, authorities claim no wrongdoing, and um, multiple witnesses claim that the fatal shots, several of them, were fired uh, into Michael Brown's body while he was kneeling with his hands in the air. Everybody agrees that he was an unarmed, he was unarmed at the time of, of the shooting. And so the people of Ferguson, which is over 60% African American, rose up in protest, demanding justice, and the department refused to, to release the officer's name and, and a number of other things, and, and that's when things got even uglier. The authorities in the city and county and state of Missouri uh, responded with a show of force that can only be described as militaristic. Gigantic army surplus vehicles rolled into the streets of an American suburb police officers in full-on body armor that one of the tweets I saw this week was a, was a, a veteran of um, the, Afghanistan, Afghan, the Afghan campaign and showed a picture of himself in the, in the body armor that he had and how paltry it was compared to these police officers who were training military-grade rifles with laser scopes onto the bodies of American citizens. As the protest continued, authorities lobbed tear gas, which is, by the way, um, illegal in war, into the crowds of protesters, who in some cases were standing in their own yards. In at least one case, they fired a tear gas canister at a news crew that was trying to film the events. And that's one of the reasons you didn't get good news coverage at the beginning. There's a video of a SWAT team lobbing a canister of tear gas at a TV news crew who, of course, have to leave. Journalists were barred from the area and in at least two cases were arrested. Rubber bullets fired into crowd. And I could go on and on and on about the horrible response uh, of the authorities. In Ferguson. I also want to point out that this did not occur in a vacuum. Ferguson, Missouri, as I mentioned, is a town that's over 60% black. However, the police chief and the mayor are white. Only one city council member is black. Just one school board member in Ferguson is black. Only three of Ferguson's 53 police officers are black. In 2013, in Ferguson, 
483 African-American people were arrested. Guess how many white people were arrested? 36. 92% of searches and 86% of car stops in Ferguson involve black citizens. When police officers stop citizens in Ferguson, they're almost always black, but white citizens are more often caught carrying illegal items, weapons or drugs. One in three people stopped white people were carrying contraband, while one in five black people stopped were carrying contraband. So that's why I say it doesn't occur in a vacuum, because the... Uh, the, the systemic racism in Ferguson is the foundation on which this ugly tower was built this past week. Rochester, as you know, is a city that has some similar issues, which is one of the biggest reasons why I wanted us to stop what we were doing this morning and engage with this event. And if you think about artisan, you could take a moment and look around, but you wouldn't have to, to know that we're an overwhelmingly white congregation. And so, it might be easy, it certainly would be possible for us to ignore this event. But it would be wrong. And we wouldn't do it anyway because we have just begun to take the smallest steps toward racial reconciliation by building relationships with other congregations that are predominantly African-American in Rochester. And do you think that our friends at Christ Community Church of Rochester, under Pastor Marlo Washington, or Baber African Methodist Episcopal Church, under Pastor James Simmons, do you think that they are coming to worship this morning, singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. They are not, because for them, this is too personal. They don't have the luxury to pretend that, it's, that it didn't happen. And because they aren't singing that song, we aren't singing that song. Because they don't have the luxury to pretend this doesn't happen in America, and this is not an isolated incident of uh, racism being expressed through the systems of authority, by the way. We don't have the the luxury. By the way, lest you think I am anti-cop, I'll tell you a story Uh, of a time I was speaking to a police officer about an encounter he had had. This was some 25 years ago. And there was a a young man, and I don't, the story's so long, I don't actually remember the the race of the man, whether he was white or black or or Asian, Latino. But he had a, a, a toy gun that he was brandishing, and this officer drew his own weapon and you know, had him in his sights and said, put it down, and he had it up like this. And it was at a distance that this officer could not think, could not tell if it was a real gun or not. Later found out it was a toy, but couldn't tell. 
repeatedly asked him to put it down, and eventually he did, but he said, I have to be honest, if he had made a gesture toward me like he was going to shoot me, I would have fired at him. This police officer was my father. So I understand the very real risk and difficulty and immense challenge that law enforcement officers undergo every day. My uncle is a police officer. My, mar- my sister is married to a state trooper. I am sympathetic to the police, broadly speaking. But this is not a, this is not a case where the police um, have acted in a way that deserves our sympathy. Whatever may have happened in that street at the very beginning of this incident, the man was unarmed. And all that happened following that is, in my opinion, utterly inexcusable. And as people of faith in Christ who believe that that God is calling us to seek justice in our world, we cannot just pretend this didn't happen. Do you remember that we are ambassadors of reconciliation? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. I just mentioned this verse last week in my sermon as a supplement to the, the one verse in John that I managed to read. This event had happened the day before, but I hadn't heard of it yet. If anyone is, Christ, is in Christ, then there is or he or she is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. Do you remember those verses? They seemed a little bit less poignant, perhaps, when we first encountered them last fall. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry-as-dust religion. Jeremiah 6, 13-15, For from the least... To the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And this just crushed me when I read it this week. They have treated the wounds of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They acted shamefully, they committed abomination, yet they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. They have said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, if you just look in your, uh, your own neighborhood, most of us, myself included, I live right across the street, most of the time it seems pretty peaceful. You know what people complain about on, on the Facebook group for my neighborhood? <laughs> um not police action at all. They complain that somebody stole a lawnmower. And they call the police, trusting that the police will take care of them. 
growing up as the son of a cop, I just always thought that was true for everybody. If you're in trouble, you can call the police. It doesn't end so well all the time. I could give you more scripture. But at this point, I think you've heard enough of my white male voice. As I have agonized over the last several days about what to say to you today, I've increasingly been convinced that you need to hear the voices of African-American Christians who have engaged with this issue um, from a more personal perspective. Because they own it in a way that I cannot. And so, in what every preaching professor I ever had would consider very bad form, I want to read some things to you right now. I want to read to you three blog posts written this week by African-American Christians. All, all women, as it turns out. And some of these words will be challenging to you and certainly have been to me. Some of what they say you may want to reject and say, that's not me. And it may unsettle you. If it doesn't, you're probably not listening. But I think we all need to hear these words. And that's, that's all I can give you this morning, is, is a chance to hear these voices. The first one was written by a friend of mine, actually. Her name is Oshida Moore. Her husband, T.C., was... Um, planting a church in our denomination in Boston. And uh, I've met them at a a number of denominational gatherings, and they're wonderful people. She alludes in her blog post to the idea of raising hands, the posture that several witnesses claim Michael Brown was in when he was shot, and to the protests that followed in many places, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. If you do a Google image search for hands up, don't shoot, you will see exactly what I mean. Here's what she says. When asked why I raise my hands, I say a number of things. I raise them to praise God for redeeming me. My hands are holy because His hands were pierced, and so I raise my hands. I raise my hands to call God Abba, like a daughter who reaches up to her daddy because she knows she's loved and wanted. When I'm reminded of the love of God, I raise my hands. I raise my hands when truth is spoken. Yes, yes, this, I say, when truth lights up my soul and illuminates the lies I so easily believe, the lies that keep me from living whole, the lies that perpetuate brokenness. When truth burns them away, Refining me to do kingdom work, I raise my hands. I raise my hands and surrender. When life's too much and fear crouches before me, claws at the ready to shred my confidence, I raise my hands to God. Today, I raise my hands not to worship, but to pray for the community of Ferguson and the families of Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, and John Crawford. Today, I raise my hands... These holy hands made holy to do the holy work of reconciliation in this sin-stained world. 
I raise my hands and ask God to redeem the violence, redeem the suffering, redeem the heartbreak in Ferguson. I raise my hands to thank Him that He has overcome, but to ask Him to come, be present, and bring peace. With my hands in the air, I pray, by Your wounds we are healed, Lord. Usher in healing for grieving families and the community of Ferguson. Today, I raise my hands because perfect love casts out all fear and because Abba Father sees the suffering of His children. I raise my hands to bear witness to my brothers and sisters who were tear-gassed and shot with rubber bullets. I raise my hands because my love for them is restless. I can't do anything tangible with these hands, but raise them high. Lord, we are restless for change and anxious for hope. We are witnesses of injustice. We are the women at the foot of the cross. Empower us to stay through the torment so that we can be present to bind up wounds and then see resurrection. I raised my hands to God, who out of his great love for his children heard their cries and carved a path towards justice when there seemed to be no way. Make a way in Ferguson, Missouri, Lord. Make a way and drown the enemy of your peace in your waves of justice. Today, I raise my hands because the truth is black lives matter and black kids don't have to be college bound for their deaths to be tragic. I raise my hands for the truth that Jesus identified with the poor, broken, marginalized, and ignored. I raise my hands because Jesus is our truth and he will make us free. I raise my hands because it is so true that he will empower us to beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. We need only identify ourselves as willing truth tellers. So I lift my hands to receive the necessary tools of this heavenly alchemy. A humble heart, listening ears, love-spun courage, and most of all, open palms that refuse to cling to bitterness, hate, or fear. Today I raise my hands and surrender. I can't do this work on my own. I can't even pray for reconciliation on my own. I need the Holy Spirit to come and take my jumbled, incoherent words and turn them into something powerful. Lord, place a terrible fear in the heart of the enemy and advance your kingdom of peace where violence has made its camp. I am but one woman with a heart for the many who are sweltering in the racially charged climate of our country. Nevertheless, I raise my hands. I raise my hands in surrender. I raise my hands in protest. I raise my hands in holy anger. I raise my hands in solidarity with the people of Ferguson, Missouri. Will you raise your hands too? This next one is by Lisa Epperson. And she makes some allusions to the fact that she wrote a blog post last year when Trayvon Martin was killed. I have my, my hood here. She says, Twice on Wednesday I almost cried. Imagine the salty taste of tears pooling in the corner of my eyes, choked a little on the lump in my throat, First time it happened, my almost four-year-old son wanted my help. He loves the carousel but needs the extra support of my arms encircling him to feel really free. His perfect little boy body, his delight in the blue bird he'd chosen to ride, a simple mother and son moment. And just as the ride began, Katy Perry's roar on blast, I glanced out over the pier and watched the waves have their way with the docked sailboats. Dark and thick, the Hudson River threatened to eat me alive. 
if I didn't pull myself together. Later, I traced the tips of my fingers along the edge of the bench we sat on. I wondered if Hurricane Sandy was responsible for the water-washed look of the world, if it mirrored my fatigue. Lately, I have felt so tired. Maybe it's the river's fault. As much as I've loved having my coffee here for the past few days, the water done a number on me. The ebb and flow of the tide rocks my emotions. The ebb and flow of the tide rocks my emotions. Hormones fluctuate, answering the moon's call. It's healing and hydrotherapeutic, but it's also nauseating. And like I said, it brought me to tears, almost. I have to tell you something. I wrote a post a year ago. I wrote it in frustration. A call to the Christian community I know God's placed me in to speak up, to acknowledge the death of a 17-year-old boy. At the time, my Twitter and Facebook feeds made plain the troubled times we live in. The white Christian world on social media seemed to ignore the death of Trayvon Martin. It wasn't happening in their world. I was confused and heartbroken because I believe our Christianity demands we take part in these conversations, that we figure out a way to peacefully engage each other about what it's like to live with the implied truths of a post-racial society. I have to tell you, racism is real. I have to tell you, my family lost a son like this on the streets of Chicago. Over 35 years ago, Joe Lee was 16 and visiting from Alabama, unarmed, but met the description of a robbery suspect in the area, black male. I have to tell you that I am the mother of three African-American sons. Each fits the description of America's most wanted, the same description Joe Lee fit that night, black male. I have to tell you about that because you may not know the challenges black parents face in raising sons, the stories we're forced to tell, the fear, the prayers. She quotes Marvin Gaye, Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Can I tell you something? I don't want to offend you. That's why I haven't written. I hurt a friend last year with online words and the friendship has not healed. I'm sorry for that and I'm learning. The tension is palpable. Right now it feels like we're living in the Wild West. The Hatfields, the McCoys, the Haves, the Haves not, Have-Nots, the police department, every black male in America. It's a holy hot mess out there and I'm tired. I wanted to write but I didn't want to offend you. My truth is tangled with soul memories from darker days. Two skips and a hop back in time and I'd have been a slave. Maybe your family's domestic worker, your son's blacker berry. This ugly chapter is embedded in our American history, our DNA. My story is not like yours, and I'm still unsure how to deliver the message, to tell the story without hurting you, but I want you to hear it, and I want you to hear yours. I know you're hurt too, but we can't heal what we don't acknowledge as hurt, and the silence is deafening. Now, baptized in spirit because of Christ alone, we're walking toward each other, slowly, so slowly. And I don't want to write about it because I'm tired, but I believe as Christians we're called to tell the stories, to go there for social justice because it's true. No justice, no peace. And never more so than shown by the tear bombs and wooden pellets unleashed on a law-abiding citizen standing peacefully in protest of a community member shot and left for dead in the middle of the street. It's devastating and disgusting. 
The images of snipers positioned on rooftops to shoot civilians gives me nightmares. Has Ferguson turned into a police state? I don't want to carry these stories alone. I won't be the midwife of all this pain, the treasurer of all these tears. We can't only go there when it's convenient. We have to do it even if we're tired, even if we're scared. We have to do better. We have to be about before reconciliation every day. It's been a year. I wondered why you didn't write about it, why you chose not to share this burden, tell your story, and perhaps wrongly assumed your apathy. I view every incident like this from a racially charged filter. I do. Black men have the monopoly on unarmed civilian murder by an officer of the law. It's a fact. As a Christian, I look to my community to share the burden, the questions surrounding racism in America and how we can move forward. I'm trying to navigate this without being written off as another angry black woman, and I don't want to be quietly spiritually shunned from all the online communities I love for saying what you have to already know. Racism is real. My shoulders are heavy and hunched over from too many days spent feeling closed in on myself and you and God because silence isn't always peaceful. And I should have peace, shouldn't I? Now it's morphing into frustration and anger and holy hot tears because I feel helpless and the centuries-old fatigue has crept under my skin and if I don't know, didn't know better, I'd say I'm being haunted by Trayvon and Jordan and Mike and my Uncle Joe Lee. My quiet isn't peaceful. My quiet is not surrender. My quiet is tension-filled, the calm before the storm, the lone cry of a lark ascending, a hawk circling. I stayed silent, singing softly in my head, out of feigned obedience, God, you are greater, greater. I sang softly, swaying back and forth, wringing my hands, eyes closed, and at the chorus I let my voice rise and screamed, took the keys from death and hell, and felt my spirit release, freed from a quiet that was killing me, because I knew God wasn't upset with me for being angry, and he hadn't asked me to be quiet. He took those keys with Holy Spirit force. Sometimes that's what it takes. Please understand, being Christian doesn't exclude us from the conversation. We have to speak up. To be clear, I understand we aren't all called to every conversation, and maybe you won't write about it. But standing in solidarity with a hashtag or sharing posts you've read that resonate with the spirit of Christ and reconciliation could be a beginning, because I don't want to go there without you. I talked too long and had planned to finish the third one by now, but the third one is the most poignant, and I'm going to read it anyway um, because it would be a shame to silence this voice in favor of having given my own a chance to yap. This is by Austin Channing Brown. Much has been written about the impact of Michael Brown's death and the protests that followed. As I watched the story unfold, I just felt overwhelmed and unable to write. I really didn't have much to say. My embers of anger didn't stand a chance against the rising waters of numbness. It is my M.O. to go numb when things get too emotional, too hot-tempered, too violent. Sometimes this trait serves me well. My delayed reaction to the emotion in a room is often what makes me a great peacemaker. 
Not because I'm so special, but because my emotions are often delayed in the moment. My grief, anger, and yes, even sometimes the good emotions like joy come later. And so was the case this week. While article after article popped up explaining our hurt, giving voice to injustice, calling officials to action, teaching, prodding, crying, organizing, I was trying desperately to determine what I feel. Many of you know that smaller stories unfolded even in the midst of the larger narrative. White Christians slow to respond, if at all, and the word Christian being used to define all Christians when in reality only referring to white ones. And genuine calls for increased diversity and commitment to multi-ethnic churches. My timeline was filled with branches stemming from the events in Ferguson. I've read some good stuff. I've read pieces that I'm jealous I didn't write and pieces I'm incredibly grateful folks put into words when I couldn't find any. But the one article that has stayed with me, clanging in my soul, was an article posted by Feminista Jones with a link to Playboy's interview of Martin Luther King. There are a great many gems in this interview, and we would do well to read it from beginning to end. But what I found most intriguing is Dr. King's response to the question about his mistakes as a civil rights leader. His reply? Well, the most pervasive mistake I have made was in believing that because our cause was just, we could be sure that the white ministers of the South, once their Christian consciences were challenged, would rise to our aid. I felt that white ministers would take our cause to the white power structures. I ended up, of course, chastened and disillusioned. At this moment in time, I cannot confess to the same shock, disappointment, or hurt feelings that MLK describes. I've read too much, been at this too long to sincerely claim that I expected the white church to finally get it right in this present moment of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, John Crawford, and Michael Brown. The white church doesn't have a great track record on racial justice, and what's worse, displays very little shame on the matter. On the whole, the story of Michael Brown and the assault on Ferguson didn't gather the same level of attention as ISIS or Mark Driscoll. Many of the white Christians who changed their profile pictures to stand in solidarity with Christians on the other side of the world were absolutely silent when black Christians right here in America were in turmoil. I'm quite used to there not being enough room in the soul of the white church to care about black bodies. There is not enough room in the service, not enough room in the prayers, not enough room in the leadership, not enough room in the values, not enough room in the mission statement, not enough room in the political stances, not enough room for lived experiences of African Americans. I am convinced that the soul of the white church has yet to be ashamed. It is not ashamed of slavery, it only dismisses it. It is not ashamed of Jim Crow, it only claims credit for ending it. It is not ashamed of incarceration rates, it only excuses it. It is not ashamed of ghettos. It pretends to have nothing to do with them. It is not ashamed of segregation. Only silently benefits from it. There is no shame for who America has been. I believe that until there is collective shame for who white America has been to people of color, white America will not choose to be something else. It is fine with who it is. It will continue to do what it's always done. Far from being offended by its own actions, instead, white America, Christians included, remain offended by black bodies. This is what killed Trayvon and Renisha and Jordan and Eric and Michael. How dare black bodies resist the white will? How dare they fight back when a stranger chases? 
How dare they knock at 4 a.m.? How dare they not turn down the music when told? How dare they sell some cigarettes? How dare they walk in the middle of the street? How utterly offensive for black bodies to disobey whiteness. Most children growing up in black households know this. It's why I was told never to put my hands in my pockets while shopping, even when I replace items back on the shelf. My parents knew a store owner by by thinking I might be stealing could cost far more than prosecution. It might cost my life. It's why black boys are given explicit instructions on how to behave when pulled over by the police, right or wrong. Not because our parents are trying to instill some deep values, but because they know our lives would be at stake. And so our list of how not to be offensive grows. Pull up those pants, don't wear a hoodie, keep your ID on you, cut your hair, be careful of the pictures you take with friends, smile a lot, turn the music down, be a good Negro, and maybe your life will be spared. But that list can't save us. It never could because the culprit is something we cannot change, our bodies. And though I list here offenses that seem only secular, I assure you the white church is no less offended. Sometimes I wonder if they are most offended since God and whiteness are too often synonymous. We sense the offense of our bodies all the time when gospel songs are used in service and folks complain when MLK weekend is the lowest attended weekend of the year, when teaching on race and folks walk out, or worse, attack the teacher, when the thought of reading a black theologian never enters the psyche, when black folks have to make a case for discussing injustice, when our way of being is strange, standoffish, exclusive, unwelcoming, toxic, or the result of groupthink. These moments remind us that our very existence as autonomous human beings, is in itself offensive. And so when white white folks strike a nerve or embody a pet peeve with one another, the result is rarely violent. There's too much respect for self and others. But embody that action in the form of a black body and all bets are off. Death is always possible. And that is the reality black folks have lived in since arrival on America's shores. Resistance to the white will could result in death. So I'm not giving white Christian adults any more easy answers. If you want to know what to do, my answer is this. Risk death. Risk the death of your reputation. Risk the death of close ties to your family. Risk the death of your dream home and safe neighborhoods. Risk the death of a smaller congregation. Risk the death of your big donations. Risk the death of your worldview and perspective on American history. Risk the death of your comfort in majority-dominant spaces. Risk the death of leadership role, of your speaking engagement, of your writing opportunity. Risk never being invited back to the conference. Risk the death of your social and professional circles. Risk what we risk just trying to live. Choose a new church home and sit under the teaching of a black preacher for two years. Choose a new neighborhood where your fate is intimately tied to the fate of people of color. Go back to school and take a history class from a black professor where your academic success lies in the hands of a person of color. Choose to be mentored by a person of color every week. You do what they say when they say it. No excuses. Choose to go places where you see the stories behind the statistics where someone can connect history to the present for you. Send your kids to a black or brown school. Need the wisdom of people of color to survive. 
If you want to be committed to racial justice, you must do more than read a book at home alone. You must do more than add people of color to your social media lists. You must do more than attend an MLK service or a Ferguson vigil. These are good things. You will benefit from them. But buying our books and reading our blogs and sharing our posts will never, were never intended to be your journey. These things are to aid you in a much larger commitment to justice and reconciliation in the world. Reclaim your soul. Risk death to your comfort. Place yourself under the authority of a person of color. Connect history to the present. Make some lifestyle changes. Root out the offense of the black body from your heart and mind. Maybe, maybe we won't have to post pictures of this week alongside some new ones in another 50 years. I do not believe that racial justice will come only if the white church finally gets it right. History has proven otherwise. Nonetheless, this is an opportunity. A new generation could speak out. A new generation could make a difference. A new generation could turn over laws, vote what's best for black and brown communities, could dismantle systemic racial injustice. A new generation could reclaim the soul of the white church long mired in the mud of power and supremacy. This is your chance. You can join or you can sit this one out. But as the community of Ferguson showed us, we will stand with or without you. I apologize for this taking so long, but I do not apologize for reading those voices to you because I don't know if there's any other way that we would have heard them together on short notice. I want us to pray together the prayer for reconciliation that we prayed during our Ambassadors of Reconciliation series. I don't, I don't know what to do right now except pray to give you those voices and then pray together. We have work to do. But let's pray. Um, I'll read the uh, regular lines and you read the, the bold lines, okay? Across the barriers that divide race from race, Reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide rich from poor, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide people of different cultures, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide Christians, reconcile us, Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide men and women, young and old, Reconcile us, Christ, by your cross. Confront us, O Christ, with the hidden prejudices and fears that deny and betray our prayers. Enable us to see the causes of strife. Remove from us all senses of superiority. Teach us to grow in unity with all God's children. Amen. I imagine we might cut a song here. I don't know uh, how you want to do this, Anna, but we're going to take communion together and um, we'll do a, how about this? We'll sing a song while we take communion together and then we'll do our announcements and then we'll sing another song. And if you have a place you have to be and we're expecting to, to go, then you can certainly go, but you can stay for, for that last song as well. All right. Would you guys come up, Ben, as um, I'm introducing the elements so that we can dive right into this song? This table of the Lord is offered 
to followers of Christ around the world, all through our city. We take the same bread and wine that our brothers and sisters at C3 Rochester and Baber take. We, we participate in the same sacrament, even when we don't always take them together. That's how I want you to focus this morning. Think of the discord and disunity that you have, particularly as it regards our relationships as a as, as predominantly white congregation with people of color. And make that a prayer as you receive the body and blood of Christ and His grace into you. Remember, others are doing it too. And may that be one more little step on the road to reconciliation and unity. The table's open. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.